everybody, welcome back. It's good to have you here. My guest this week is the one and only coach Jason Coop, the Mr. Miyagi of ultra running, as I like to call him. <laughs> and Coop has been my personal coach for seven years. He is the single biggest contributing factor to the moderate level of success that I've achieved in the sport of trail and ultra running. And he's just a wealth of knowledge. Of course, people know him not only as a coach, but also as an author. He's written a great book on the subject called Training Essentials for Ultra Running. And he also recently launched a podcast around the beginning of this year, which is my go-to source of ultra running information. And if you haven't found that already, please do go back and exhaust that entire archive. But today, we're going to talk mostly about our relationship, give everybody hopefully a glimpse into what it's like in a healthy and functional coach-athlete relationship. Jason and I have been able to get along extraordinarily well over the course of our seven-year relationship. We've also learned a lot from one another, and our relationship has evolved a lot. It's nothing today like it was when we started back in 2013. And I mean that in a good way. And we talk openly and honestly about that. We talk about the things that we've done well. We've talked about the things that we screwed up and what we learned from those experiences. And we talked about how these coach-athlete relationships can be most productive. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Coach Jason Coop. Jason Coop, my coach. Good friend. It's nice to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, nice to see you as well. Thanks for having me on. As the world deteriorates around us, hopefully uh, this will be an opportunity to uh, take people's minds off the news and we'll uh, we'll be able to talk a little bit about ultra running, which... Yeah, uh, I, I figured this is like one of those things. It's almost like training. And you know, whenever you, it, from a coaching standpoint, when you think about training, it's always a get worse before you get better scenario. Yep. Maybe the world is just going through that <laughs> right now. Maybe better at, so, the, at, the, other, at the other end of this. We're in the middle of like a really hard training block. And when we come out of this, we're going to be so fit as a uh, society and as a species that uh, maybe we will evolve into uh, the next chapter of... Uh, human greatness. But anyway, Jason Coop, you're my coach. We, you know, we've worked together for almost seven years now, which is amazing how, uh, how time flies. You've guided me through the best years of my career, the best performances of my career. You've pioneered the concept of coaching in our sport to a large degree, written the, the textbook on the subject, if you will, and uh, have brought a lot of value through through that and, and your own podcast now, which is easily the best podcast in the ultra space, in my opinion. And I want to talk about a lot of those things, but uh, you know, to sort of get current events out of the way first, you and I both talked to Joe Gray last week for our respective podcasts and figured we would uh, just spend a minute maybe discussing the circumstances of the world right now and maybe things that stuck out in your brain from uh, your conversation with Joe and, uh, and generally what your feelings are as we go through this tumultuous moment. Well, as a byproduct of, of talking to Joe, listening to your conversation with Joe, and then 
paying attention to what's going on in the space right now. I got to be honest, while we mentioned from the onset of this podcast that the world seems to kind of be deteriorating, I am enormously impressed with how the running and the trail running community has come together during all of this. And it, I just think that that it goes to speak to the type of people that are attracted to trail running. And I know this seems like a lot of like, you know, we're patting ourselves on the back and all this other stuff. But I mean, really and truly, like when I look at when I look at other communities and how divisive this this whole, you know, the, this whole last few weeks have been. I mean, I, I really do think that the sport of running and the sport of, of, of trail and ultra running has been one of those bright kind of those bright shining lights and almost to the point where it's it's odd that we don't have as much diversity in yeah. the sport. Like it's just weird because we're a very accepting community um, where, you know, we we welcome people with open arms. And the fact that between you and I, we can go look at the community and we can identify just a small handful of African-Americans to bring on the podcast to talk about their experience in the, in the, in the community. It's just weird. And mm -hmm. that part of it, I can't quite put my thumb on, but how the community has actually reacted, it, ac it actually has given me a lot of, you know, a lot of positive hope for the future. No, I agree a hundred percent. And I think a microcosm of that, is just been my experience on social media and I'm sure yours has been similar as well. And, you know, I posted what is probably the most, you know, openly, uh, I guess, uh, I guess you could call it political or just like kind of an angry statement in response to what we've seen go on over the last 10 days or so and received zero hate whatsoever. And I was fully expecting to, you know, have at least a few sort of negative comments. Of course, I don't have an enormous audience by any means, but I was expecting to get at least a few comments that uh, would have, you know, made me somewhat less optimistic about, um, you know, the people who follow me at least. And, and of course, most of the people who do follow me are, are members of the ultra community. So it, I think just, again, as a microcosm of the point you're trying to make of, um, you know, our, our sport and the people who uh, are part of it are just, just good people. And we do need to do better in terms of encouraging a little bit more diversity, but we can save that, that conversation for, for another podcast. But and I a hundred percent agree with that. I, I do think that as a community, we need to do, we're, we're accepting, but we can take pro, we can take more proactive steps. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, now that, uh, now that we've sort of gotten out of the way, hopefully we can give people a little bit of a break from, that subject matter. And I think what would be most interesting and most valuable for people who will listen to this is to just get a uh, kind of fly on the wall view of the, the conversations that we've been having together for the last seven years. And I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that we've had a really great relationship and it's led to a lot of success. It's not to say that things have been perfect, um, but it's worked out really well uh, for both of us, I think, and, and especially me being on the receiving end of so much knowledge um, that you've been able to, 
you know, give to me directly and to the entire community um, through your various channels. Um, but I want first to just kind of provide a little bit of context and maybe uh, you could give the people our origin story together. What do you remember about those, uh, those early days and how we got, <laughs> how we got in contact? Uh, so, okay. So here's, here's what I remember. So I was working with a couple, husband, wife, couple who's actually, who are actually very prolific in the trail and ultra running space. Uh, Brett and Missy Gosney, who are still, I no longer coach them, but they're still great friends of mine. In fact, I was texting Brett just the other day about something and they were over in Chamonix and they, they sent me this message that, Hey, we ran into this kid, Dylan Bowman. And this was seven years ago. So it's, you know, 2020 right now. So this is, you know, 2003, 2004. It was and, UT, uh, UTMB 2013. Yeah. 2013. Yes. Yeah. 2013. My math is not very good today. I was going back <laughs> <laughs> 17 years. That's seven. Uh, but anyway, they sent me, they sent me this message and said, we ran into this kid, Dylan Bowman, who has no idea what he was doing over here. He's completely, utterly underprepared. He just broke his ankle running on the trails here. And he looks like a deer in headlights every single place <laughs> that he goes. Will you please help this kid out? And I was like, okay, fine. I know, you know, I know I knew you from Leadville, mm-hmm. um, from you running Leadville. I think you're third the year before that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was familiar with you as an ultra runner, but had, had never encountered you in person. And I was like, sure, I'll, you know, pass my contact information along and off we went. Yep. True story. Yeah, true. True story. So, <laughs> yeah, just to kind of provide a, a little bit more context. Uh, yeah, at UTMB 2013, I absolutely destroyed my ankle the first day that I arrived uh, as a young, ambitious American ultra runner arriving in Europe for the first time with big ambitions for the race, and was fully convinced that I was going to be able to still complete the loop around the mountain, even though I had absolutely destroyed my ankle. Um, luckily, you know, w- smarter people than me convinced me that it was going to be, uh, yeah, it, very unintelligent to try and complete the race that year. And, um, luckily for me, I then had a front row seat to the race crewing Anton Krupichka with Joe Grant through, through that night, which was an amazing learning experience for me to be able to kind of see what it was like to follow the front of that race as somebody who thought that I was going to be able to have a chance to compete and coming to the realization that I was fully unprepared and having that realization mixed with also being an injured athlete gave me the, uh, I guess, motivation to reach out to, to Jason Coop, who I knew to be pretty much the only, or one of the only coaches in ultra running at the time. But, um, Coop, I I was more referencing, um, your original contact with, uh, with Dakota Jones. Tell, tell the story about the quad rock 50 miler that year. And, um, or I guess that may have been the year before, but, um, tell that story about, uh, the quad rock 50 and Dakota, who was at trans grand or trans that year. Well, okay. So when, when, when I started working, I started working with Dakota, not that far in advance of actually working with you. And, um, I knew that, I knew that he was a good, you know, I knew that, I knew that he was a good runner and he and I had been, uh, 
he, he and I had been connected through a similar, um, through a similar set of circumstances with our mutual friend, Topher Gaylord, who was his, um, when he was running for Montreal at the time, Topher was working for Montreal and they, you know, he connected us together. And once again, I had no idea who the kid was, but within two weeks of me working with him, he set the course record at Lake Sonoma. Yep. And at the time, you know, it was the unbreakable you know, course record, like, because it was so far above and beyond whatever, you know, whatever had been done before. And I'm like, well, you know, I just started working with this kid, but it's not like, it's good, but it's not that good. So let's like pump the brakes on, you know, the performance context on this just, just a little bit. And then six weeks later, he goes out and beats Killian at Transgrand Canaria or Transvolcania. Yeah. And it was at that point where I was like, holy cow, like this kid's got you know, this kid's got something. And yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a weird set of circumstances around that race where Killian was coming into it, just kind of like late into the preparation game. But Dakota and his, you know, and his competitive nature, I mean, he took full advantage of it. You know, he's a great downhill runner. He'd been doing a lot of training and things like that. And the, the outcome of the outcome of that story, to be quite frank with you is really what put me on the map as a coach because everybody looked at that and said, Oh my God, here's this kid who beat Killian, you know, the unbeatable, you know, the unbeatable athlete, you know, who's he, you know, who's he working with? And in an effort of full disclosure, I take very, very little, if any credit for that, like very little. And I was the first person to say, this is Dakota. I've been working with him for, you know, a very short period of time. Yes, this is a great story and all this and the other, but it's like, you know, if it's normally 1%, you've heard me say this a lot, Dylan, if it's normally 1% me and 99% the athlete, in that case, it's like one tenth of 1% me in like 99.99%. So I I definitely got a, got a bounce from that, like a professional bounce from that. But it's, it's kind of what got the ball rolling where people started to like really pay attention to trail and ultra running and coaching specifically as something that can, that can help them improve in the sport. And one of those people paying attention was, was yours truly. And, uh, I was a young runner at the time. I would think I was 24, 25. Dakota was much younger than that. Even I think he was only 20 or 21 when he won that race. But, um, the quad rock thing that I was referencing, I'm sure you still remember this. Maybe you don't, but, um, you, <laughs> you were, on this. <laughs> so you were running the quad rock 50 miler, Nick Clark's race in yeah. Fort Collins, Colorado, while Transvolcania was going on that year, this is 2012. I was there volunteering because Nick Clark was a friend and uh, I needed to satisfy my Western States volunteer, um, you know, criteria in order to be able to be eligible to run the race. And it's at that point, I was just as much of a ultra nerd as I am today. And I was following the, uh, the live tweets from Transvolcania and at six o'clock in the morning, I had the good fortune of being able to d- deliver the news to you that Dakota had won the race and beat Killian. Um, um, while you were in the middle of your own 50 mile effort and you, uh, you had a nice little celebration at the aid station and, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, a short time later I hurt myself. And, um, because I was paying attention to, you know, your ability to bring Dakota to the top of the sport, um, as somebody who's always enjoyed coaching and, and responded well to it, it was my motivation to reach out to you. So, um, yeah, it's been seven years now, but, um, 
it's a, uh, it's been a great ride and, uh, you know, we've got a lot to, uh, to talk about where that's concerned. So to bring it back to kind of where things started, of course, I returned from UTMB. We started working together. My ankle was still messed up. What do you remember about the first, uh, those early days, those like first few weeks and months of working together? Well, you, you, you obviously were a good athlete that showed some early potential in the sport, but like a lot of athletes that, that kind of like come into ultra running, you can find success almost in spite of yourself. And that's really where you were at, where you were getting a lot of success just because you're, you know, you're a decent athlete and the sport isn't that competition dense in a lot of, uh, in a lot of areas. But you notice that that you notice kind of like right off the bat when you went to UTMB, as you know, you've said as an eye opening experience that in order to be really, really good, you have to you have to be firing on all cylinders. You can't just get you know, you can't just get lucky. And so I kind of I, I, I have always viewed my role with athletes that are like that, that are coming into the sport, that have a little bit of talent, that are trying to get better and try to like master their craft it's kind of equal, it's kind of equal parts foster them within the sport itself, just as a person, you as a man, and then also improve their, you know, physiology and their competitive capabilities and things like that. Um, and, and definitely it's more on the first part or it's more heavy on the first part, like early, early in that relationship where you need to get exposed to, trail and ultra running, you need to get exposed to different types of competition environments, you need to get exposed to different scenarios, you need to, you know, kind of travel the world and kind of figure out what your individual strengths and weaknesses are. But then ultimately, what are you going to excel in? And you're at the point where you really didn't know that because of that limited amount of experience. But I think now that you look back on, you know, certainly the last seven, and I would say more in particular, like uh, up until about three years ago, so the first four years that we were working together, there w- there was very much this deliberate process of, okay, I'm a little bit better at these races and I'm not so good at these races. And I'm a little bit better at those types of races. And these are the things that are interest me. And that kind of like ebb and flow as an elite athlete, you generally want that specificity to start to hone in over the, over the course of years. You don't want to directly go there because you've got to experience all the different types of competition. But over the course of several years, you're going to, you're going to want to do the things that you're the best at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, one of the things that you've always said from the beginning, which is something that I always keep in mind as I set goals is like to actually listen to that thing in your in your heart or in your head, that's like pulling you towards a certain race, you know, like you actually, you actually have to be motivated to do the race itself so that you can be motivated enough to do the training. That's going to lead to being ultimately successful at that race. And, you know, to, to kind of give people a little bit of a a glimpse into the, what the, that training looked like at the very beginning, of course, my ankle was so messed up that the first thing that we did together was, was bike interval workouts. And I had never done a running interval in my entire life. I was a team sport athlete growing up. So the first intervals I ever did was your, uh, your patented, uh, six by three minute full gas VO two max uphill bike sprints where, you know, I pretty much, 
would have to get off the bike and walk around for a few minutes afterwards just to like compose myself. But it was just amazing, like how, how quickly I, I started to improve. And especially after my foot became healthy enough to do, um, do run training, my, the trajectory of my improvement was just like, unlike anything I had seen, not only in running, but in my, in my history as an athlete. And one of the things that we still do to this day, but that, um, we did very early on were, um, uphill lactate threshold intervals. Can you talk about why that is such a critical part of your process and and maybe why that was the thing that we, we started with and has been part of our bread and butter for years? Yeah. Well, so the first thing that I'll always say with any athlete is that, whatever workout that you give them in the situation that you were in, which is a really raw athlete, right? You had done no intervals, right? Anything's going to work. I could have given you the most absurd interval workout on the entire, <laughs> in the entire world. And you would have been like, Oh my God, this is awesome. I'm so much better after doing these. And, and it's because you're coming from a relatively, I mean, you're a good athlete, but you're coming from relatively unstructured training and coming into structured training. So, so the, the, the combination of that like particular interval set, although I do, I do use that a lot. I mean, that's probably one of my like dirty dozen types of workouts that I use. It's not, it's not quote unquote, or it wasn't quote unquote magic for you at the time. It was just something different. Now the magic comes in once the novelty wears off. And that's in my opinion, where coaches can really earn their keep is that once you've been working with an athlete for anywhere between three and four years after they've kind of mature, after they've matured, after they've gone through the trials and tribulations, if you can still get improvement out of the athlete at at that point in time, that's when you know that you've got like the right combination of workload and rest and motivation. And you've got this like special sauce of coaching and training that's actually efficacious. It's not after the first year. So you might, well, you, and this is, this is fun to go through this retrospectively. Well, those first two years, you're like, oh my God, I'm awesome. I'm improving so much. This coach is making such a big difference. I'm on the other end. I didn't let you know this at the time, but I'm on the other end going, well, no shit, Dylan. Of course you're doing better because you're doing something smart and not just going out and plotting and plotting around. Um, but, but to go kind of go back to your initial question, I mean, one of the, one of the key reasons why that type, that, that threshold type of work is so, is so bread and butter. It's because in a ultra running situation, that intensity for an elite athlete is very versatile. And you at the time when you're running like 50 K and 50 miles and then up to hundred K, one of the things that I, that I noticed right off the bat, with coaching a lot of elite athletes and you're one of the first kind of like group of elite athletes that I was working with is that you can climb at an intensity for those durations of races. You can climb at an intensity at that, at, at an intensity that's pretty close, if not right at your lactate threshold. And so if you're doing interval work or if you're developing the physiology that is associated with that intensity, you can use it in a lot of different, in a lot of different race situations. And that's not something that I knew before working with 
you and Dakota and a few other uh, lead athletes kind of along that time, that took a lot of race data to actually gather mm. and look at. We didn't know it from the, from the research because there was no research at the time. In fact, I looked this up because I, I had, I have another project going on right now where I had to, I had to look at it. When I first started working with, um, with ultra running athletes in two, 2002, 2003, there was a total of six, six published papers in the literature that mentioned ultramarathon six over the whole year. And now there's, you know, between 60 and hundred a year, just to give everybody the scope of it. But when I first started working with ultra athletes, that's how little that we knew about the demands of the sport. So I had the only other way that we could figure out what was going on was just by looking at race files. And it took a while to actually, to actually figure that out. And so the genesis of that bread and butter is actually looking at what's going on in real time with athletes during races and then trying to translate it into training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to also mention that when we first started working together, it wasn't as if, my training load went up yeah. it, like the, the total amount of training hours. In fact, if anything, it, it went down. And at the same time, as I mentioned, it was the first time that I ever started doing intensity and pretty much a hundred percent of that intensity were these lactate threshold uphill workouts, especially in the first couple months of us working together. And again, it was just as if, you know, yeah, like my, the, the trajectory at which I was improving just felt like it was astronomical. And of course that just becomes like the most motivating and addictive feeling in the world when you start feeling that. And, you know, you, your perspective is very much like scientifically oriented and like, you know, literature based and whatnot. But, you know, for the vast majority of people who just want to like get better, um, you know, I think it's important to emphasize the fact of just like how simple it was, right? Like I had a couple easy days, I had a rest day, I had two or three interval days where I would just go uphill like a five by 10 minute style, four by 10 minute workout with five minutes rest and a long run on Sunday. And it wasn't as if we were, again, as, as you said, you know, I'd, anything was going to be better than what I had been doing. And the specific, I guess, demands of those type of workouts are so valuable for ultra runners, as you said, because you can uh, apply it in various race situations. And we spend the vast majority of the time during each race climbing. And therefore, if you can uh, improve your, your climbing ability, uh, that's obviously going to be very valuable. Uh, going uphill, you have less chance of injuring yourself, I think, just because it's less of a pounding sensation on, on the frame. Um, and so anyway, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like, I was doing no flat intervals. I was doing no downhill intervals. I was doing all uphill intervals and just the, the aerobic benefit of that, um, was something that allowed me to improve just like so much in such a short period of time. Do you have anything you want to kind of add on that front? Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's interesting because, because you at the time was, a, it was a little bit of a test case in terms of programming. So we've all, we've known for years that certain combinations of volume intensity work better than others. And we know that through other sports and research and practice and things like that. And, and it's, but 
but today in the early 2000s it really hadn't been kind of like flushed out in ultra running so we we're kind of making a a little bit of a uh, of a leap of faith in terms of the translation from one sport to another and I'm very I was very fortunate that in the early part of my coaching career I had I had mentors that were very good coaches that were extremely hard on me. I mean, they were like absolutely vicious Mm -hmm. on what I would bring to the table. I came in and I started coaching as a 21 year old knucklehead that I thought, you know, I thought I knew everything and I really didn't know anything. And I present, you know, some sort of logical training structure to, uh, to these coaches in like a case study. And they go, okay, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Well, why is this interval five minutes? Why is the rest two minutes? Why is your, you know, rest day on Monday? Why is the recovery run 60 minutes? Like really digging down. It would take them like an hour of, you know, beating the crap out of me for one week of workouts that I would have to, that I would have to justify. And that experience was so incredibly invaluable when I started moving into ultra running because I had to, I had to replicate that experience on myself. And so when I was working with an athlete, I go, okay, well, why is this interval structure this way? Well, we just went over, okay, it's a threshold interval. They're going to be able to utilize it in a 50 mile. Okay. Why is it uphill? Well, because speed is not that consequential in an ultra marathon race. Yeah. You're always running your normal day-to-day training runs. You're always running it at a faster pace than you are during the actual race. So how do we get a cardiovascular improvement and at the same time hedge against injury in this condition where speed is not really a big, is not really a big factor. Okay. Let's just do the hard pieces uphill. You know, that makes all the sense in the world. Then you compare the uphill speed to the overall race speed and it's about the same. And so that the, all of what you mentioned, although it, it, boils down to some very simple concepts. Okay. Go do four by 10 minutes, hard five minutes, easy uphill. Right. It doesn't, it's not like I just threw some combination of whatever against the wall or, or I regurgitated it after seeing it in a training book or anything like that. It's a very intentionally crafted combination of work and rest and modality to, to elicit a, uh, 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 a certain response. Now, it just happens to be that you're absolutely right. The training structure that I generally use with athletes is really simple. Like I can, I can show you my training peaks. I have a custom library that I built in training peaks with all of my workouts. There's like 15 of them, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not complicated. And yeah. I mean, you and I, we've been working, you know, together for like seven years. I've never tried to like manipulate the intensity of the recovery interval or, you know, try to come up with some like fancy like algorithm on, okay, you're going to do like 70% here and 80% there and 20% here and all this stuff. Like it's all like really, really simple stuff, but it's intentionally simple because that's what, what ultimately elicits the right response. Yeah. Yeah. Very intentional, but also, yeah, very, very simple and very intuitive and, and very effective at the same time. So Coach, would you agree that like, I've always been a better racer than I am a trainer. And do you see that often, you know, between athletes, like people who, who train super well and can't put it together as well in a competition context? Um, any thoughts on that subject on the, the people who are better at training or better at racing? Well, a hundred percent, you're a better racer. 
hunt like like there's absolutely no doubt about it and you and you're and you were that way because of both sides of the teeter-totter you're a really good racer but also you're not that good of a you're not that good of a trainer right yeah, so the yeah. combination of, of both of those makes that separation really good and don't get me wrong like you put the work in when you want to put the work in but you know as well at times you're lazy and you're like yeah, i don't want to do this i'm not that motivated for it and that's fine that's just who you are but you're a great racer. Let's like, get that out of the way. Like you race above your pay grade consistently. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. Um, I do see those discrepancies uh, often. I don't know whether it's the majority of the time or whatever. And I do see them in the opposite condition where people are great, you know, great trainers and they, they do an awesome job during, you know, the day-to-day -day training process, but for whatever reason, they can't put it together um, uh, during a race. Those are, um, those are harder coaching projects because you know that 99% of the time they're, they're reflecting their, you know, their, their, their kind of true state, their true capabilities. But the 1% of the time that it really matters, or it's really, I guess, really meaningful is the better way to put that. The 1% of the time that it's really meaningful, they don't get to show it off, uh, which is, which is, which can be rather disheartening. And so those tend to be more interesting coaching, uh, uh, more interesting coaching projects because there's usually a reason for that and you have to work through what the races mean and how the athletes like think about performance and competition and things like that. Like that's not a workout that you give somebody those that's like work on themselves that they mm -hmm. need to do that you can help that, that me as a coach can help, uh, can help facilitate it. Um, so yeah, so we see, we definitely see it on both sides and especially at the elite level, you know, it's a, it's always a complicated puzzle to, to try to piece together to, to ultimately get what those performances should look like. Yeah. I think it's just something that I've found interesting to think about, especially in the last few years of just like, you know, when is it that I have my, my best races and, and when is it like, what's the training that goes into those races, races usually. And it's not usually the training that, is like the most heroic or the highest volume with the most workouts, you know, for, for me, it's, it's obviously a balance of some of those hard workouts and some of those great long runs, but also much more kind of like how I'm feeling on a personal level, how energetic I am, how my, you know, uh, stress levels are outside of my athletic life and uh coming up with the the right formula but then also having a history of being an athlete somebody who's motivated by competition um yeah i think that the freshness mixed with the you know the lifelong experience of being an athlete and thriving in those environments allow me to to outperform my training on uh on a number of occasions and i think that's been an interesting thing for both of us to kind of discover uh over the course of the last several years so to get more specific coop what do you think are some of the things that we've done particularly well over the course of our relationship that you think have lent themselves to us having a, a great personal relationship, but also success in a racing context. I want to hear your answers to this afterwards, but <laughs> I want you to go first. Sure. I, I honestly think Dylan, the biggest thing is like you're autonomous. Like I, and I, I, 
I, I try to strike this, I, I try to strike this point with our younger coaches and then also with athletes that I work with that I know that I'm going to have like a long-term coach athlete relationship with is that ultimately it's their running, right? It's your running. It's not my running. I don't put two one foot in front of the other to make, you know, Dylan run or anything like that. Like you've got to get your butt out the door and do the work and show up to the races. And I can't be there at every single mile to tell you to run faster or slower or anything like that. You know, if anything, during, I mean, you know this, Dylan, you, you, and I know you've expressed this to me before, like you absolutely, you know, treasure the fact that I'll go to races and, you know, show a face and things like that. But the reality is, is I'm very not, I'm not very functional at those. Like I just let y'all do your thing. Like you're autonomous. But that's intentional, right? And so I think the biggest thing, especially for you being an elite athlete, is that over the course of years, you can come to the table and say, okay, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to execute it. Coop, how are you going to help me? Versus what, you know, what special formula of training are you going to put together to make me awesome? Like, no, that's not the way it works. It's not me making you awesome. It's you being awesome. And me just help kind of guiding the ship here and there. Yeah. That above everything else, like the autonomy that 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 you started to have maybe about four years ago, and probably Western States, if we want to go over that story, was mm-hmm. the, the biggest catalyst with that. Um, I, I would say that that's the thing that that collaboratively we've done we have done the best is that moving you from an athlete that as I mentioned at the onset of this podcast is kind of a deer in headlights to one where you're very, you're very deliberate in where you want to go. You know, the races that you want to do, you know, how you want to tackle those performances. And even if we drill it down into, to coaching and training, it's like, Coop, this is, this is what I feel I need to do, you know, next week and the week after and the week after that. Is that correct? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a pretty close. Let's maybe yeah. change this like little one thing here, but yeah, you got it. Yeah. No, it's funny. Um, I was thinking about this the other day too, of like, you know, usually at the beginning of a training block, you know, once you put the first week up in training peaks, I can probably guess with like 80% accuracy what the next three or four or five weeks are going to look like. And, um, yeah, I, I think I'm somebody who also appreciates simplicity and I appreciate that the small things that you do, like I much prefer to gauge my, uh, my training on time rather than miles and pace and things like that. And I know there's other people who have different preferences in that, in that regard, but I think just on a personal level, that's helped us to have a good relationship. That's just those small things. But, um, you know, as it relates to, you know, things that you've sort of brought into my career that I think have been enormously helpful and enormously valuable is just like this consistent like churn of, of work over the course of the years, but without much excess at all. And the consistency that we've had has just been pretty remarkable. And that really the only thing that's put me out as, you know, serious, acute injury, never had any kind of like overtraining or, uh, overuse injury, anything like that. And I went back and looked at my Strava data and it's pretty remarkable if you look back at it because like from 2014 to 2017, uh, or 2018, so four or five years there, all of my training is within like 50 to a hundred miles a year. Like I put in almost exactly the same amount of work every year 
for like four or five years in a row. And, you know, it's not to say that every workout's the same, every training block's the same. Of course, every race is different and every approach to every race is different. But just that like constant, like, you know, steady churn without excess and without, you know, um, erring on, you know, not doing too little. Um, yeah, I think it's just been like, I don't know that just, I don't know if you've ever like intentionally, you know, sort of capped the workload, but it's pretty remarkable when you look at it, just like how similar the numbers are all those years in a row. Well, that I can tell you unequivocally 100% that is deliberate. Yeah. And the reason is because you see the, the first few years that we were working together, there were moderate increases in volume and the volume of intensity over those years. But one of the things we know from the research and also from just practice with athletes is that athletes are going to hit some sort of maximum level of workload that they can tolerate, but they will still improve over the course of years, even at that maximum tolerable load. And you were never at your maximum tolerable load. I always take a little, like a little bit off the top, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is the amount of workload is not proportionally related to the amount of improvement that you can get. And I knew that right from the get go, I knew that, okay, you know, if I were to map this out, you know, seven years, which that's not an exercise because I didn't know we're going to have this conversation seven years from now. If I were to map this thing out seven years from now, first few years, there'd be some increase in, you know, in training and the athlete's going to get better and it's not going to be because of me. It's just going to be because, you know, everything's new. And then after that, we're going to keep things stable, but the athlete can still improve. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's what we see time and time again with long-term coach-athlete relationships is that you don't have to necessarily increase the workload, the total workload as, as you're looking at it through any one year and the athlete can still get better, even to, even despite that lack of lack of increase. And there's a whole host of reasons that that uh, that that occurs. One of them is just duration. Like the duration of training is so meaningful year after year after year, especially in endurance sports. It's such a chronic adaptation that you're um, uh, that you're looking at. But the biggest thing is just you learn how to race. You mm -hmm. learn how to perform, you learn how to really press yourself, you know, during races and kind of squeeze every last, uh, every last ounce out. Um, and, and we know, we know that that, uh, the, that, that obviously has a, an impact on performance as well. So this whole concept of not always searching for how to squeak out an extra mile or an extra hour or an extra repeat or lose an extra pound or like those little kind of like marginal things around the edges. Those are deliberate things to not chase down because you know that you're going to be able to get improvement year after year after year, just by sticking with the fundamentals. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, such a great lesson for, for so many people and uh, especially, you know, young athletes coming up who feel pressured to do insane amounts of volume or, you know, look at what Jim Walmsley does on Strava and feel like you have to do that to be the best in the world. You know, for some people, their bodies and their personalities are conducive to that. Mine absolutely isn't. And so, yeah, you know, like, again, like finding the right guidance, the right leadership of somebody who can, you know, take what, what you're good at and the, the person that you are and, you know, work within a, a sustainable, um, 
type, yeah, just workload over the course of several years. And the other thing I was thinking about too, in this vein is just like your, um, uh, your teaching me about the importance of specificity and about, you know, training for the race that you're going to be doing. And that was again, going back to my eye opening moment at UTMB <laughs> coming from <laughs> San Francisco Bay area and, and being like, Oh my gosh, like, yeah, if my ankle had been operational for this race, there's absolutely no way I would have been able to have a, a good performance or, you know, potentially even finish. And then, in the early days of our working together, you, you know, emphasizing the importance of like, do what you're motivated and interested in doing and gain experience racing against good guys. And, you know, that's what we worried about for the first few years. And then it was, it got much more into like, okay, this is how we're specifically going to prepare for this race. You know, we're going out to Colorado to train for UTMB, et cetera, et cetera. And so those are two things that I think you've, uh, you've really helped me with. So on the other side of the coin coop, what are some of the things that we've screwed up and, and what did we learn from them? Well, it's the, it's the same thing that I've screwed up with any athlete and that's just getting overzealous with things. Yeah. Um, and that does it. And that goes to, that goes from training to racing to, chasing around some sort of like specific adaptation that you thought was valuable or whatever. I mean, with, with you, uh, and I think you would agree with this. I'd say like the, like the biggest failure point of your career was when you dropped out of Western States. And that was something that both you and I, we collectively colossally screwed up. You did too much racing and too short of a time frame, and it bitch in the butt. And it's really easy. And this, I, I wanted to take a special point to to mention this. It's really easy to look back on those things and go, "Oh my god, how, we screwed that up like so bad." Oh, I can't. I, what were we thinking? Like, it's really easy to retrospectively go back and look at you know hindsight being twenty twenty with those things in real time. And I rem, I remember real time much, you know, much more vividly than I do looking, looking at things retroactively in real time, you and I will both admit it seemed totally logical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is, this is what you, this is how you're going to go. Like this is going to build off of this and this is going to be a good test point here. And yeah, there's enough spacing between this race and Western States and this other training block and all that stuff. Like we looked at it both collectively and agreed that, yeah, this is the, this is kind of the right path. <laughs> um, so I could, you know, there, you, you're not the only athlete and I'm not the only coach that has, but that has, you know, fallen afoul to that mistake of trying to put on too much and too short of a time frame. Mm-hmm. But whenever, whenever you and I have made mistakes on, on this, it always has to do with, too much in a shorter in a short enough period of time. The other thing that I'll mention with that, kind of in in conjunction with the, it all seems good in real times. It's a really hard thing to to um, to actually work out. Is that it's never perfect. We we always like to think that these race buildups and like the way that you know even elite athletes' calendars work out and things like that. They're in this like pristine, polished you know, idealistic situation. I mean, as you experienced in 2019 in the early part of 2020, it's anything but 
Like you're mm-hmm. always having to come up with compromises and yeah, okay, I don't want to, you know, make another European trip or I've got this other, you know, work thing or whatever. It's never perfect. And so we, while we like to like generalize these, oh, well, don't race, you know, more than two times in eight weeks or kind of whatever it is. Yeah. We forget that reality sometimes dictates that we have to we have to make some of those compromises, and that's what that's what makes this balance of trying to of trying to figure out training and racing the right frequency and things like that. That's what always makes it so tricky. Yeah, yeah, and that that was an example that I would have pointed to as well. And really, the only time that I feel like we got overzealous to a point where it negatively impacted my racing, at least to a serious degree. And to your point of, you know, the fact that it's so easy to identify in hindsight. Yeah. I mean, leading into the race, there was no real indication of that, at least that I had communicated. And this is the major thing that I took from that experience is before that race, this is Western States, 2015. I had two of the best races in my career winning the Terrawera 100K and Ultra Trail Australia uh, early in the season. Both, you know, this is, the, I think, the first year of the Ultra Trail World Tour, second year of the World Tour, and winning two big international races before uh, Western States, which was my major goal for the season. And Ultra Trail Australia was only six weeks before Western States. And it was a race that I had to like, absolutely crush myself in order to win. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but I only won by a couple of minutes and I was with, with a guy, you know, racing head to head with 5k to go or something. And so it was a race for that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's unfortunate. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it just took a lot out of me and those six weeks in between, we, we poured it on because that's what you do before Western States. Right. And, intuitively, internally, I knew that like, I couldn't handle the training that I was doing. Like I was not enjoying it. I felt awful, but I never once said coop, like, dude, I'm not feeling it. Like I can't get out the door right now. It was just like, you know, this is what Western States training is supposed to feel like. It's supposed to be miserable. And, uh, you know, ultimately just had zero gas and, um, was the first time I ever dropped out of a race and it was obviously painful in the moment, but I think that the biggest learning experience of, of my career and of our working together, just like, all right, I really need to pay attention to these signals and communicate them effectively. And I think I've gotten much better at that as an athlete of like telling you how I'm feeling. And then in, you know, relationship to that, you have, you've always done a good job of taking the feedback that I give you and applying it and adjusting the training that you have prescribed or yeah, just like coming up with different plans and being flexible and, you know, we don't need to go off on too much of a tangent, but there are examples of ways or times at which I've told you like, Hey, this doesn't feel right. And we've done something different and the result has been amazing. So that's, you know, one thing that I think is a, is a great lesson for people, you know, who are looking to have a, a, a great relationship with a coach is to, yeah, always be super open about how you're feeling on this, on a subjective level too. just like, you know, what is it, how easy is it to get out the door? You know, how did you feel during your intervals? Because it's not, everything doesn't show up in training peaks or in, on Strava. Right. So, yeah. well, the, the coaching error in that Dylan, you know, once again, I'm, I'm one of my own, you know, worst critics here. Um, 
the coaching error in that is me not being deliberate enough with you to draw out the subjective feedback between those two critical points of the race before Western States, Ultra, Ultra Trail Australia and Western States. Not, it's not the architecture because mm-hmm. the architecture is a byproduct of the subjective feedback. Yep. It's, it's me not saying, Dylan, how are you feeling? Are you really doing good? I know you yep. want to put your head down and train, but you got to be honest with me on how you're feeling and all those other things that like to, if we want to kind of use these lessons for the audience out there to learn from the, the coach, the coaching error in that, and as a, as a, as a byproduct of that, the athlete error in that is not draw is not being intentional enough with drawing out that subjective feedback during a time where subjective feedback should be the most critical. It's always the most critical, but it's even mm-hmm. hypercritical in the several weeks leading up to a big race. That's great. That's great. Thanks for adding that. So, so moving on from that subject, I wanted to touch on something that you and I've talked about a bit over the last couple of years, and that is the concept of pick and stick. Can you explain what that means and why it's important for me as an athlete? Yeah, it's because, so, so elite, I I don't want to paint this picture like elite athletes have this like, you know, private jet you know, lifestyle where they can fly around the world at a moment's notice or anything like that. But the fact of the matter is, is, is as an elite athlete, you get cool opportunities. You have race directors all the time, you know, Hey, come out to our race. We'll pay for this. We'll pay for that. We'll give you a small stipend. We'll put you up in this hotel. They're in really cool areas. And they're when you're, when you're a good athlete in the sport, you're a sponsored athlete in the, in the sport, you're typically getting more of them then you can reasonably handle. Mm-hmm. And it's tempting to want to do them all. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, the, the way that they unfold, that the way that the race requests are unfold are asynchronous with your planning cycles. Mm-hmm. So typically an athlete say, okay, I'm going to focus on UTMB. Or I'm going to focus on Western States or whatever one high profile race. Build out all the training kind of backwards from there. UTMBs in you know, August, we're going to build all the training back from, you know, July, June, May, all the way back to February and things like that. Well, in the middle of that, you're getting the request to come out to the races. It's like, okay, well, in March, you know, I was supposed to be doing this type of work, but now I want to go out and I want to do the, the, this race. And so what I try to emphasize to the, especially the elite and the professional athletes that I work with is that what's the most important? Let's pick that and let's stick with it. And if the opportunities that you have that come up are additive to that, you would have done them anyway. It's a good race. It's kind of within the same, you know, intensity that you'd be training at and things like that. Then great. If it doesn't detract from the thing that you're really stick, you're, 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 you're kind of really sticking towards, then great. We can kind of, we can, we can put them, uh, we can put, we can put them into the fold. It's always going to be an error when you start to shuffle those races around too much. Yeah. And, and that's the origin of the pick and stick between you and I. It's just like every, I can't remember what year this was, probably <laughs> two or three years ago. Like every other yeah. week, it's like, oh, well, then I need to go to this. And now I need to go to that. And now this thing got canceled and I've got to go to this, you know, North Face deal over here. I'm like, hey, just pick something and like, stay, like you're going to do awesome at whatever you pick but you have to like actually like fulfill on whatever thing that you pick and not just kind of like keep moving around. Right. Yeah. And it's not always a result of getting 
too many invitations to too many cool things. Oftentimes it's the Genesis is some kind of like self doubt or some potentially like hiccup in training or yeah, like a trip pops up and you think it might compromise the training block that you have pointed towards one race. So you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this race. I should go to another one. And, you know, for me, it's been valuable to practice this pick and stick, uh, philosophy to just take that mental energy out of the picture, right. To just pick what I'm going to be doing, commit to it and, and stick to it, barring, you know, some, you know, uh, unforeseen circumstance that would really prevent me from sticking to the plan. Um, and, that I, I think just is, is valuable in itself, just as, you know, as an athlete who, you know, has aspirations to compete at a high level, just removing that, that self doubt component or the like, Oh, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. Um, I think ultimately, yeah, I think helps you to kind of be intentional and focused on the process at hand and sort of take those, those sort of like, end goals out of the picture and work around the potential challenges that come up in real time. You know, like if I'm in the middle of a training block and all of a sudden I need to go on a a trip somewhere for a few days and I feel like it's really going to interfere with my, my training and ultimately potentially my performance, you know, it's, it's finding the solution in real time, you know, what what can I do during that trip that's going to actually be more valuable um, towards this eventual performance rather than like, oh, I have to turn everything upside down because this uh, might change one little aspect of my preparation. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think that's something that a lot of people could apply, you know, is that, that helps with the self-doubt is just like, pick your, pick your goals and stick to them. And, uh, I think that that's helped me over the last few years with your guidance. Yeah. And the linchpin and all that is it needs to be meaningful to you. And, and we're finding, we're finding out a lot about this with the coronavirus epidemic going around is there are a lot of athletes that are just doing stuff to do it. You know, they're, they're, they're dipping their toe in the water with the virtual races and they might try some like FKT or like a route around. And, th- and those are all great. Don't get me wrong. But what they're finding out is, is that sometimes doing things just for the sake of doing them isn't as meaningful as doing something that you've had your heart set on. And you and I go through this, you know, every year when, when we're planning, I'm like, okay, what's like, what's going to be meaningful to you? Is it going to be this type of race result? Is it going to be going to UTMB? Is it going to be, you know, trying this or whatever, like trying to figure out what is like deep and meaningful from our, from a racing and an accomplishment perspective. That's invaluable for everybody. Mm-hmm. Not just the elite athletes. That's for everybody. I mean, we can go to the start. I I, I pull up this example all the time. Leadville Trail 100 has a 50% finish rate year after year. And there's absolutely no reason that that race should have a 50% finish rate. It's all hundred miles are hard, but that is not a hard hundred miler. It's, yeah. it's just not. Yeah, it's at 10,000 feet. A lot of people want to blame the altitude and things like that. The reason that it has a 50% finish rate is because people look at it and they, you know, got it in their heads at some point or another that is a cool thing to do because they read Born to Run or they saw a movie about it or whatever. And they're like, oh, I'm going to do, you know, this 100 miler. 
but completing the Leadville Trail 100 was never really that meaningful to them. The idea of competing in it was something that was attractive to them. And that's Uh, why they got into it in the first place. But actually going through the whole race and making it all the way out to Winfield and all the way back was not deeply meaningful to them. And so I sit at, you know, the outward bound aid station every single year that they have the race that I'm not running. I sit there from the early evening when, or the early afternoon now that the runners are so fast, the early afternoon when the leaders come in all the way through the cutoff, which is like three in the morning or something like that. And the runners that drop out are indistinguishable physically from the runners that continue on absolutely yeah. indistinguishable. You could, you could, it's a 50, 50 shot you've got, right? 50% of the people drop out. You cannot pick them out one to the other. Some of them are hobbling and they've already got the sideward lean going on and they make it out of the aid stations. Other ones look chipper and then they drop out. The, the, The real difference between the ones who don't drop out and the ones who continue to, you know, make it all the way to six and Harrison street are the ones that have a deeper meaning behind completing that race. And they just didn't get into it because it sounded good at the time. It's such a good point. And it's so relevant to my personal experience as a person who completed their first hundred miler at Leadville when I think I was 24 years old and just getting into running. And people ask me all the time, like, Hey, I'm running my first hundred miler. Do you have any advice for me? And that's always what I say is just like, dude, you've got to absolutely be of the mindset that you're going to finish no matter what. And I was absolutely of that mind of just like, I couldn't wait to do it. And there was absolutely nothing that was going to stop me, you know, like I, I'm, I really believe that even if something catastrophic would have happened that day, I would have gotten myself to the finish just because that's what my attitude was going in. And that's how excited I was. So that's a, that's another great lesson. So I want to talk about another thing that's kind of individual, um, but I think every coach and every athlete deals with to a certain degree. And that is like the type of training that you enjoy doing versus like the type of training that's actually like useful for you to be doing. And you and I have, uh, you know, known and battled uh, over the years with the fact that you know, I, there's just some workouts that I just don't like doing that much. You know, the, the six or eight by three minute full gas uphill repeats while they are a great workout. I just find them to be so unenjoyable, but I actually do enjoy doing, you know, the four or five by 10 minute uphill style workouts that on slightly lower intensity. So how is it that you think about that as a coach of like, you know, here's what the athlete likes to do and what they're good at. Here's the stuff that they don't like as much, but is also valuable. And how do you balance those two things? Well, I'll, so I'll give you the sound, the sound clip for this particular podcast that you, uh, that you can put in the audiogram. I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't care what the athlete has a preference to or what they like or whatever. Like I care about performance. Yeah. And entertainment does not always equal results. And so I look at it through that lens first. It's like, okay, what do I need to do to, to, to get the results? So, sometimes, sometimes, very rarely, there needs to be like a little bit of, of, of appeasement, especially in a commercial setting. Like you've got an athlete who's not trying to like win the Olympics or, or whatever. 
you, you need to, you need to reasonably keep them engaged in the program because compliance is one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest, uh, indicators of success. They just keep showing up day in, day out and almost irrespective of the architecture, they're still gonna, they're still gonna improve just by, just by showing up each and every day. But I don't start from that point. I don't start from the point of, okay, what does Dylan like to do? I want to start from the point of, okay, what is, what is, what is, what is, what is, uh, what is Dylan going to benefit the most from? And then figure, and then figuring out things um, from there. I see, I'm going to rant just for a little bit. I, I see, I see coaches try to entertain their athletes all of the time, all of the time. They're always trying to overcomplicate the workouts, come up with some little wrinkle. They've got a cutesy name for the workout or something like that. And that's all fine. That's all fine and good until the structure of the workout starts to compromise the efficacy. Uh And that's what, and that's where you start to, and that's where, in my opinion, you start to get into trouble where you start to contrive what you're actually doing with the athlete in a way that compromises what, what they really want you to do. Cause what they really want is they want to improve. That's like what we're here for as coaches is we're trying to make athletes better. And if you're compromising that for the sake of you know how you asked the question, like what you like. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, I don't. I don't think that that's a good compromise in al- almost all circumstances. Like, there's, you know, I hate to be like absolute about uh, absolutist about things, but um, in general, my orientation point is, and this is especially true with the elite athletes, is what's going to benefit them the most, and let's structure things around that. And then if you get to the point where you're just like, hey, you're giving me the feedback that I want to go and do this run with Yasin or whoever else, you know, happens to be your training partner for the day, then great. As long as it's fitting in, there are times that it doesn't fit in. And then you have to say, no, listen, you really need to get this type of this kind of like this type of work done. Um, So that compromise between like what the athlete ultimately likes to do and needs to do that, that actually, that actually happens a lot. But I always think that it's the coach's orientation to start out with, how, what's going to benefit the athlete the most and then trying to trying to create training and communication and everything else that goes around coaching around that like central access point. Yeah. So kind of in that vein as well, you know, we talk about coaching each individual and their strengths and weaknesses, but also their personality. What are, maybe give an example of one of the things you've learned about my personality that has allowed you to create better training or that you've applied to my training as a result of learning this, this about me over the course of years? Well, I I would say it's not, it's not anything about more. It's honestly, it's like giving you the rope when you're just completely disinterested to go and do whatever you want. And had I started coaching you with a younger version of myself with like a 25, I mean, I've been coaching since I was 21. Had I started coaching you with a younger version of myself, I would have pushed back on that pretty hard. Yeah. The younger version say, Nope, you absolutely like get like, put your nose to the grindstone Dylan. Like you've got to be engaged the whole time. Like I, I, I would, I would have fought that there. One of the things that I've really and I'm going to mention one other thing after this, if you remind me to, but one of the things that I really appreciate about you is like, you know how to disengage. 
when you're not into it, you're like, bro, I'm out. Like, let me just go run. I need to, I, you know, I don't want to focus on my diet. I want to drink a few yeah. beers with the boys. Like I'm out. And I, 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 I appreciate that. And I let that, I let, you know, not I let, it's your choice ultimately. Yeah. But I, I view that as something that's really healthy for you to do. And then backing off of the, uh, uh, of the structure is absolutely the right, the right call to make. The other thing that I'll mention, and this is actually re- a, probably a little bit related to like some of the mistakes that, um, uh, that we've made is that particularly when you were living in San Francisco, um, the, the running community out there was so incredibly important to you. And you guys had these anchor runs from the San Francisco running company uh, on Saturday that were just ridiculously hard. Yeah. I mean, and I, I work with, I, at the time I worked with several people that were all doing these runs and I'd look at them every Monday when I come back into the office and I'd be like, Oh my gosh, these people are like killing themselves. Like they are <laughs> go, like tooth and nail. Cause I could compare them side by side because yeah. it'd be you know two or three or four people all on the same run. And it probably took I me mean, maybe a whole year, Dylan, before I, I realized, or I came to my senses, I realized it right from the get-go before I came to my senses and said, okay, this is a big enough training stress that you need to back off of the training stress in the middle of the week mm-hmm. via a, a, a different combination of things for different people because it's so hard instead of trying to force, okay, Saturday needs to be this exact perfect workout. Yeah, The community aspect and you pushing yourself with that community of people was more impactful to you than whatever perfect workout that I could have contrived for the day. And like letting that go over the course of maybe like six or eight months or something like that, however long it took for us to like, you know, figure that piece of it out. I think it was another like valuable, like, like kind of like turning point in your training, in your training mm. at the time. Yeah, no, that is a really good example. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because both the Saturday group run and the Wednesday Mount Tam summit run right. sort of oftentimes became, you know, two of my workout days. So I would just basically time trial Mount Tam, which would be a really good uphill lactate threshold type stimulus, but it also satisfied this community social aspect that you're talking about. And then the Saturday group run would be also a pretty high quality long run effort. And if we needed to add stimulus to it, I would just go early and do a little bit more uh, intensity before the group run even started. And those runs, I think, you know, over the course of my career, some of the most valuable that I've ever had as it pertains to ultimately leading to competition success. So I think that's a a really good point. And to your point about giving me rope to, uh, to be, um, you know, kind of a lazy ass sometimes, I think that is another, yeah, it's a great thing, you know, that we've sort of been able to navigate as a coach athlete relationship. And me learning about myself of just like, I'm not the type of athlete that can do workouts 12 months out of the year. I just can't do it. And not, not physically, it's not that I physically can't do it, but I just will totally lose interest if that's the case. And I need to have those extended periods of, uh, flexibility and, um, you know, 
somewhat quote unquote laziness in order to then buckle down when, when the time is right and, um, and have the motivation and, and energy that I need to, in order to, to really tackle the training. And I appreciate you being, uh, understanding of me, uh, during those moments. But I think that again, yeah, it's, it's another reason why we've had success in our professional relationship and personal relationship is that you never, you know, tried to force things on me that I don't want to do. And, at the same time, you can count on me to, to work hard when, uh, when I need to. So <clears throat> let's talk a bit about what's going on right now specifically. Of course, this is the second year in a row that Hard Rock was canceled, which was supposed to be my main goal of the season. Um, it was canceled last year as well, but I was in poor health at the time, so it wasn't that big of a deal. It seems racing is in all likelihood not really going to be happening this season and you know who knows about the future um maybe uh talk a little bit about what we're doing right now training wise and the purpose behind that structure that's a good question so also all athletes are going through this right now i mean i is is this is a, this is like this statement that gets like thrown out of context. Right. But I'm going to, I'm not afraid to make it. I'll make it anyway. Um, I, I cannot personally empathize with everybody who's setting up their Corona gardens and taking up puzzling and knitting and things like that because they're stuck at home. And like, I get, I get it. Like people are out of work and you know, they're, or they're working at reduced capacities and things like that. But I cannot personally identify with that because my honest to God, my coaching workload has doubled since all. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. And it's not, and it's not because I'm taking on more athletes. I have the same number of athletes. It's just that every conversation has to revolve around coronavirus and what's happening with the races and keeping people engaged and is running meaningful and things like that. And so the, like the art form of coaching with communication and motivation and things like that has taken on a two or a threefold increase in terms of the amount of time that I'm, uh, the amount of time that, I, that, that, that I'm spending on it. And it is the zillion dollar question right now. Like what, like, what is, I answer that question 30 times a week. What is the purpose of my training? When, when in previous to that, you have a race on the calendar, the purpose of training is so that you make it through this race, right? Mm-hmm. When the race, you survive the race, you get your big belt buckle, kind of like whatever it is. Um, and so a lot of people are, 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 are kind of questioning, you know, why they're running in the first place. And I, I think that that's a good question to ask because if we go back to that previous example with Leadville, if your purpose with running extends beyond getting a big belt buckle or finishing a race, you're going to continue to train. And yeah, you might take off a little bit of the training workload or it might not be quite as intense or you go do an adventure run versus a workout or like maybe a little bit of the edge gets taken off, but that's fine. But you're going to continue to run. The runners that have, that don't have that question as well defined the question being, why am I running in the first place? Those are the ones that are really struggling because they're typically end product focused runners. They're typically mm-hmm. focused on the goal, the outcome, yep. and not the uh, and, and and not the process itself. And so, I, I always I've always viewed running and training through a process oriented lens. If you're if you're more focused on the process component of it, the outcome 
can change and ebb and flow. And, you know, the Olympics are now in 2021 and not 2020 and now hard rocks, you know, three years down the road instead yeah. of next year, like that end outcome can change and you can continue to keep the, the train on the tracks because you're solidified in making yourself better each and every day. You're, you're solidified mm-hmm. in, in, in the process of it, but that's a hard concept for a lot of, a lot of runners to like wrap their, like wrap their heads around is getting, you know, the proverbial 1% better every day or however, or, or however you want to phrase it. And so literally what you're going through right now and what almost every athlete that I, that I work with is going through right now, is just that constant level of improvement. Like you're still training, you can still improve. Absolutely. Yeah. There's not something a month down the road that you're quote unquote training for, but you're still ultimately getting ready for something. And to be honest with you, the training isn't going to change all that much. Mm -hmm. If you did have that race there, you're still going to go through cycles if you look at it. But if you look at it over the course of 12 months, as you, you know, your last four years is, is a very good example of, if you look at it over 12 months, you're going to do about the same amount of training and about the same amount of volume of intensity and about the Mm -hmm. same amount of workouts and things like that. It really, it, it, the sequence might change a little bit or the density might change here and there. But if you're really focused on just simply like getting better year after year, month after month, the over, like the overall stuff that you do when you look at, look at it over a 12 month period, doesn't really change, doesn't really change all that much. So that's what people should be focused on. It's just like getting better, using running to fulfill something other than, you know, getting a big belt buckle. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good point. And obviously the process versus outcome thing is something that we all have to, uh, really, uh, you know, emphasize or prioritize over the course of however many more months we have ahead of us of these, uh, these wild, uh, economic and, um, political and, you know, um, medical times. And, uh, yeah, I think just to kind of talk specifically about our training that we're doing right now that I've really enjoyed and that, uh, I think has been effective for what we need right now is that, yeah, every workout has been like this morning, I just did four by five minutes. It was not a complicated or overly intense, uh, workout, but yeah, it was, you know, it felt good. It felt like I could have done one or two more reps. Uh, wasn't a, a total soul crusher. Um, and you know, let me get at least a little bit better, uh, or at least keep, you know, some semblance of fitness so that once, uh, we can start being, you know, a little bit more goal oriented that, you know, you aren't starting from, from zero. And I've really, uh, I've really enjoyed that just having, good, solid, consistent training that you can keep sustainable for a long period of time where you feel like you can do a little bit more if you need to, uh, but where you still feel like you're, you're challenging yourself and and getting a little bit better. So, um, coach, one other thing I wanted to get your take on that I think is an interesting thing, um, specifically as it relates to the, you know, the, industry or business of coaching and the dynamics of coach athlete relationships is Pau Capel, who of course has risen to the highest ranks in ultra running right now on the international circuit, having won the ultra trail world tour the last two years and 
of course, winning UTMB last year. And when he was on my podcast, we talked about his relationship with his coach um, who had been coaching him since his entry into the sport. And he recently just announced that they had parted ways and he had started working with a new coach. It seemed everything was cordial and fine and friendly and he has nothing but positive things to say about his previous coach, but I wondered if you had any, any opinion on, on that dynamic, you know, an athlete who wins UTMB and comes from being an unknown athlete to being one of, if not the best in the world at what he does under one person's leadership and then changes, uh, to, to a different coach right at that moment. Do you have any, any opinion on that as it relates to Pow or just generally? Yeah, I'll have to generalize it a little bit because I'm not going to profess to know Powell's like specific situation or motivation. And I, and I, I read into it after you after you sent me all of that. Um, with with an elite athlete, it's it's it, it's 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 complicated. And I, I mean, I can tell you from you know being a coach over the last twenty years. I've obvious I've obviously had athletes come and go. It's part of the deal. I've seen it, you know, time kind of time and time again. And I mean, you know just as well as anybody else that I take a very personal investment in my coach athlete relationships. It it is personal to me. Yeah, I do it as a business. Absolutely, 100%. But but, but it is also personal. I mean, I was at your wedding and you're not the first athlete wedding that I've gone to. And I I tend to know people's, you know, kids and, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And from that perspective, and from that perspective, whenever you have worked with an athlete for as long as Powell had worked with his previous coach, it it is, it is a personal change as well. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. telling a friend, like, Hey, you know, we're going to end this part of our friendship, which is a Mm -hmm. weird way to think about it. But in reality, that's really what you're doing is because you have this relationship that goes beyond just being a coach athlete where you're also friends and colleagues and cordial. And there's all these different things that kind of get intertwined and you take one of them out, the coach athlete piece of it. And I don't care who you are. That's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I've had athletes break up with me that I've worked with for a long period of time, I use that in a relationship sense, right? Break up with <laughs> yeah. me. That I've worked with for long periods of time. Yeah, it hurts. I mean, it's and, it, and it's also kind of awkward because you know where you've kind of like taken them to. Yeah. And you know, you, they'll give you, they'll give you credit where credit's due if they're a good, if they're a good person, but you always kind of wonder, well, you know, what if, at the same time, why it's weird, if your heart is in the right place, and once again, I don't know Powell's pre- previous coach, but I can only kind of speak from my personal experience, having, having gone through something, having gone through similar, th- similar things as this, is that when your heart's in the right place, you want what's best for the athlete. Mm-hmm. And if what's best for the athlete is truly a change in coach or a change in whatever other relationship, right? They find a new boyfriend or girlfriend, they get divorced, they mm-hmm. have to, you know, abandon, you know, some other person in their lives or things like that. You always want what's best for the athlete. And if part of that is letting a piece of your relationship with that athlete go, you've got to be cool with that. Mm-hmm. And so the from a coach, it's this weird just juxtaposition where you're going, you're going to be personally hurt because of that personal investment. 
but at the same at the same time you have to feel good for the athlete because they're making that move that they feel that they're in the best interest mm-hmm. and who knows how the story is going to pan out right but in real time in when that when that kind of movement is going on i i i can tell you from experience that 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 just juxtaposition um is is a difficult one to deal with now that that being said if athletes are out there thinking about like jumping from like one coach to the other and things like that that is something i mean i, I work with a company we have 50 athletes or we have 50 coaches on our roster and we work with about 2000 athletes annually and that comes with its fair share of i hate my coach mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying that that happens like rampantly. We do a good yeah. job with a lot of fantastic coaches. Don't get me wrong. But whenever you're involved with, or with in the relationship business, right? Personal services businesses, which yeah. is what coaching is, you do get the mismatches. People mm-hmm. don't agree politically. People don't agree like personally. You know, that's just part of like, you know, you run into a hundred people. You're not going to like a few of them. That's just sure. life. Yeah. And the the way that we've... The, the way that we've always uh, approached that is that if you can, if you effectively communicate good from the get go, you avoid a lot of that. Yeah. And a lot of times the solution, even in an area of underperformance is not, Hey, I need to jump ship from, you know, one coach to the next it's, Hey, we need to communicate about what's going on first and foremost. And then if the result of that communication is you need to shift coaches, then, uh, then, then great. But it's always a communication thing. We have this, we have this, um, we, we have this guy at our company's name's Dominic. I think you've, you've I know Dom. Before. Yeah. He's a, he's a really good guy. And I, I call him match.com for coaches and athletes because like 90% of his work day is he looks at these incoming athletes and he's like, Oh, I think this would be a great, you know, coach yeah. for this athlete. I think this would be a great coach for another athlete. Like, and he's really, and he's really, really, really good at it. And he's also very good at, at, um, uh, at kind of troubleshooting when coach athlete relationships go awry, he will always say 90 greater than 95% of those come down to just simple communication. Yep. And you know, the expectations weren't met or I didn't make this phone call or so-and-so said this and it made me feel bad or whatever. It's very rarely a, well, I thought I was supposed to be doing, you know, a 20 mile long run. And my coach had me doing a 15 mile long run, like the programming element. Yeah. Uh, like very, very, very rarely comes into, in, in, into consideration. So more often than not, those coach athlete changes come about just because of some sort of, you know, some sort of like communication thing that's mm-hmm. going on between those two parties, just like any other relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be clear. Obviously we're not speculating as to what happened with Pal specifically. I just thought it was an interesting piece of news in our sport and uh, Pal on my podcast you know, went out of his way to say that he and his previous coach were like best friends. And, um, you know, it seems just from his social media posts that that's, uh, that's not going to change. Um, and he also said something to the effect of every year he likes to train, he likes to change something, you know, to keep, keep things different. So it could be as simple as that, but I think your words are also relevant in this, uh, in this subject matter, just, you know, yeah, the, the importance of 
having the the good communication between coach and athlete. Uh, I, I can tell you one other thing from experience, Dylan, like having dug into that story a little bit is that I've had elite athletes that come to me from previous coaches mm. and I have always those are the situations that I've been the most hesitant on mm. where an athlete has had a, a long or medium, you know, somewhere between two and five years relationship with a particular, with a particular coach and all, all the cases I know, right. Cause it's such a small community, right. All yeah, everybody yeah. kind of knows everybody and they want to switch over to me for whatever reason. It's not to say that I won't, you know, say yes, mm -hmm. but I'm, those are the situations that I'm most hesitant on because of the, the, I, whenever an athlete has had success at the highest level, the coach can take a little bit of credit for that. Yeah. Not all the credit, but they can take a little bit of credit for that. And if they want to switch, it's almost like from a coaching perspective, it's, it's kind of like a lose, lose, yeah. you know, because where else are you going to take them? from right. there. Yeah. You want to help them out and, you know, it shouldn't all be about the results and things like that, but they have already been kind of the highest level. It's a it's a really, really tricky, it's a really tricky situation to like get yourself into as a coach because it's almost like you can't win. And so I, I do empathize with the, the coaches that have, have been in those situations where they've had to take on like high level athletes that have already had a tremendous amount of, mm -hmm. of success either on their own or with a previous coach, because, it's like, where, where do they, where do they go from there? That's yeah. I wouldn't do it, but it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. Pal's new coach certainly has a lot to, uh, to live Where's up. Where's he going? Where's he going? Yeah. Well, when I started coaching, I started coaching Timothy after he won two Western States. Yeah. Granted, when I worked with him, he had already like fallen off the cliff and totally, you know, he, he would admit this. He wouldn't mind me saying this totally yeah. screwed his body up and his training and things like that. But I mean, I told him from the onset, I'm like, dude, I'm, uh, like realistically, I can't take you back to two Western States wins. Yeah. Like, they just, like <laughs> right. nobody can, like nobody yeah. can, like that's not in the cards. And so if you and I are going to work together, like, let's make sure, let's make sure that we're on the same page in terms of what you want to accomplish as a runner. And he still has, he still has and had at the time competition, you know, uh, aspirations to go and compete and to push himself and things like that. But I was like very clear from the onset that if he wanted me to like rebuild him into mm -hmm. his former, like two time Western States, you know, record holder self that if that was the ultimate outcome, then great, we would take it. But that's not like, that's not, that's not something that I'm going to set myself up for or try to set him up for yeah, yeah. From, from the onset. Like I'll take you on and rebuild you as an athlete. But if you're, if you have these expectations of, you know, what, whatever it was, then that that's not the right way to start the relationship out with in the first place. Yeah, no, it's good. And I think, uh, yeah, it just kind of reiterates the point that we've been, uh, kind of reinforcing this entire conversation about just how important it is to keep those conversations very, very open and honest. Yeah. But Coop, uh, I can see behind you that one of my framed, uh, race shirts is hanging on your wall alongside one of Casey's as well. And, uh, I'm super proud of what we've accomplished together. I am so grateful for everything you've given me both as an athlete and as a friend and, uh, yeah, to, to many more good years in the future. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. 
Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. And ditto. It's right back at you. I've, I've obviously appreciated your athletic growth, but that, you know, extends into my personal like nine to, or my professional nine to five life. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been more appreciative of how you've kind of like grown as a man and being a small part in that and also being a passenger and, 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 and seeing that and seeing that development. So it's been fun, man. It's been just the very beginning of hopefully what's a long ride in that, in that friendship part of it too. Right. Hell yeah. Yeah. And maybe next time when we don't uh, pontificate too long, we can talk more about other, uh, ultra related things and, and be a little less self-involved, but I think, uh, I think people <laughs> will find it valuable to, uh, kind of get a glimpse into what things have been like between us for the last several years and yeah, learn, learn from both the positives and the negatives. So I appreciate all, all you do for the sport and the community and uh, appreciate you sharing some of it with us here on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. This was fun. There he is. The man, the myth, the legend. Thank you to Coach Coop. That was super fun. If you haven't already, please check out his podcast, The Coopcast. Link is in the show notes, along with a link to his book, which is excellent. I've read it twice. Even though he's my coach, I still have gotten a lot out of that. And you can also check out the coaching business that Jason has worked for, for, I don't know, 20 years or so, um, called CTS, based in Colorado Springs. You can check them out. Also, link in the show notes. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon.